Last week, we began this two-week series. It's just called Legacy. It's all about building a legacy, a meaningful spiritual legacy uh, for those who come behind. For any and all who come behind us, that they would find us faithful. Last week, we talked about some principles from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, This is going to be a little bit different than that. We're going to focus our time in in two main passages, Ephesians 5 and Genesis 1, if you want to have those handy. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16, and Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, We're not going to get into the deep end as much as we often like to today, except for those two passages. Uh, We've got six things we're going to talk about, two based on those two passages, and then four following that. And those two are going to sort of be the deep end of the pool that we'll spend some time in Scripture kind of soaking up what we're talking about because they're foundational things, the first two. And the next four are the other four pieces of the six factors that go into creating a context, creating a context within which faith can grow. And let me just say up front before we jump in, we're talking particularly about the context of family, marriage, parenting, comma, however, every one of these six factors apply to each and every relationship we have. Any relationship we have, whether it's marriage, whether it's a work relationship, whether it's family, whether it's friends, these six factors contribute to creating an environment where faith can grow, where God can do work in the hearts of those who are within those environments. So even though we're talking particularly about parenting and and children, and leaving a legacy of faith for our children. This applies to each and every one. So apply the appropriate filter for you as we're going along. And I, see you'll, I think you'll see that it, uh, it fits for us, for you. I propose to you that chances are good <laughs> that you and I should, and bear with me, I'll explain this in just a second. It's going to sound morbid at first, but chances are good that you and I at this point should already be dead. Seriously, I don't mean to sound more morbid about it. I don't mean to sound weird. But if we could compile, compile all the data involved in this question of how on earth it is that we're alive, I'll bet that we could statistically verify that it is an outright miracle that you and I are in these seats and breathing today. I already know that this is true for me. I already know this is true for me, and I'm sure that it's true for you as well. For me, I know three things. Number one, When I was born, I came out of the womb upside down, cord wrapped around my neck, not crying, not breathing. All of the APGAR scores, those, you know, is the baby alive and healthy? All those tests were zero right down the line. So I come out of the womb and my mom thinks, my baby is dead. I mean, you didn't know I was a miracle baby, but I'm a miracle baby. I'm alive and well, as you can tell. At least I'm alive. Second incident, five years old, when I was about five years old, I remember very clearly something that happened. I was living in Carter County, uh, Sparks Road, right across from Happy Valley Elementary, for those of you who know where that is. Five years old, one of my earliest memories as a kid is falling from a porch about five feet high, smack dab onto concrete, right on the, the top of my head, five years old, right there on the top of my head. That may explain a lot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I walked away a little disoriented, a little sort of, whoa, what happened? Uh, But but seriously, I remember thinking at the time, wait, I'm okay. 
and I, and, and I walk over to my mom and say, I just fell off that porch right onto my head on that right there. And, and she said, you did? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Five years old. Third incident. As a kid, I'm sure this was the case for many of y'all, I rode my bike absolutely everywhere. I rode my bike everywhere. I won't let my kids go past our own front porch now, but I used to ride my bike for miles and miles and for (laughs) hours on end. As a kid in Southern California and in Cincinnati, I remember doing that all the time. And there was one incident, one time when I was about 12 years old, when I was riding my bike alongside uh, traffic that's going about 40 miles an hour, four-lane traffic, 40 miles an hour on a city street in Cincinnati. And, and, and there I am, because there's no sidewalk, following alongside. I, my, my front tire plunged straight into the sewer grate, like straight into it. And the whole bike just sort of flipped forward. And, and, and all I really remember is suddenly I'm on my face looking up, and there's a, a car coming right at me, and the tire swerves just past inches within flattening my head, frankly. So let's review. (laughs) At birth, I came out not breathing. At five years of age, one of my earliest memories is falling flat on my head onto concrete. At 12 years old, I am within an inch of losing my life while riding my bike. It's a miracle that I'm alive. And I'll bet you could say the same thing about you today. No exaggeration. It's a miracle that you are alive. I know that some of you have had incidents in your life, uh, medical things as well, uh, that mean that you've gone to scarier places that have been closer to death than I have experienced. If you don't think you fit into this category, if you've walked down a busy city street at any point, it's a miracle you're alive. If you've been in a car on a busy highway more than 30 minutes, it's a miracle you're alive. If you've been in a car, a plane, a boat, if you've been on a motorcycle, if you've been on a roller coaster, if you've been in that diabolical swirling teacups ride at the theme park, it's a miracle you're alive. And it's a miracle if you've walked out of that thing without vomiting as well. Now, I don't, I don't mean to make you paranoid about your life. Don't, you know, go out those doors and think, oh, no. But let me give you a reason to be paranoid. All it takes is one little loose nut, one little loose bolt on some vehicle somewhere. And, and, and at, a, at a moment, you're, you're done. That's all it takes. So here's, here's my question. Here's my question. <clears throat> How on earth, how on earth is it that you and I are alive today? Is it because of chance? Is it because of good medical care? Is it because of the supernatural work of God? Yes. (laughs) Likely for most of us, all of those things, for sure. But one major factor in you being alive today, and this this is the foundational stuff that we're going to talk about today as to the importance of creating a context where faith can grow. Because this is huge. I believe that this is the one major factor that God uses to sustain life for us. (laughs) The one major factor God has used 
to keep you alive is that some adult somewhere cared enough to be a consistent and godly presence in your life. You're alive today because some adult somewhere cared enough to be a consistent and godly presence in your life. Think about it this way. (laughs) If you have a mother who bore you, a father who kept a roof over your head, parents or guardians who didn't let you starve to death, someone who listened well or cared at a critical moment in your life when you felt like you had no hope, or even just some random adult that at the right moment kept you from running into the middle of a busy street, then you have an adult somewhere who cared enough to be a godly and consistent presence in your life. And if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, it's likely because some adult somewhere at some point cared enough for you to be a consistent presence in your life. And if someone, if someone gave you enough time and attention, then you should understand your responsibility. Your responsibility to be the same for someone else. It's no exaggeration to say that every single one of us sitting in these pews who knows Jesus does so because some adult somewhere cared enough to be a godly and consistent presence in your life. And as it relates to today, kids, they need a consistent and they need a godly presence. All kids must have a consistent and godly presence in their life. So the question for us is how does that work? What are the contributing factors? Last week we looked at some principles. Today we look at some practices. And there are going to be six of them that we look at here today. And we're going to start, we're going to start in Ephesians 5 with the first one. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16. If you don't yet have that handy, you're going to look that up. That's a great verse that just emphasizes for us this first thing we're going to talk about. And everything we're going to talk about today takes time. It takes whatever it is over time in order for these to take hold in the life of a child. We take our cue here from Ephesians 5. It says this, just a great couple verses here. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, Look carefully then, not haphazardly, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Why? Make the best use of the time. Those who are wise are making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He's stressing here the importance of making the best use of the time because we don't have a lot of time. Make the best use of the time because there's not an endless amount of time. He says, look carefully then, strategically, intentionally, not haphazardly. Not unwisely. To be unwise is to think, oh, I've got plenty of time. i got 18 years with this kid. i got plenty of time. Once you start having kids, you'll hear people tell you about 17,000 times, enjoy it while you can. Enjoy it while you can. 
Enjoy it while you can. It's going to be over before you know it. Because you don't have forever. Because he says, he says even this, the days are evil. He talks about the days being evil because the evil one, whom he earlier called in Ephesians the prince of the power of the air, the evil one wants to deceive us into thinking we've got plenty of time, but that's not true. So that's why he says, make the best use. It's a cool word that he uses there uh, that's the same as the word redeem. Uh, if you're using the King James Version, it says redeeming the time. It's just an idea of buying back the time for the purpose of setting it free to do what it's meant to do, of setting things right, freeing something by buying it back. It's a great word. And friends, that's what we're doing in our parenting. He says the days are evil because the prince of the power of the air, as he called the evil one, wants to deceive us into thinking we've got plenty of time. Friends, the evil one is here to steal and to kill and to destroy, John 10.10. The evil one wants to snooker us into thinking we've got plenty of time, but friends, we don't. That's why. That's why. Kids need a lot of time over time. Time over time? Why isn't time enough? One moment is two people in relationship having a moment. It takes that many times to create what is important for a child in a relationship, and that's a history. Kids need time over time to establish a history. They don't just need time. They need your time, time and time again. They need a consistent and a godly presence over time in order to develop a relationship history because it's that relationship history that creates a context where faith can grow. Something that happens between two people once is a moment. Hey, remember that one time when we? That was a fun moment. End of conversation. Your relationship with that person doesn't have much of a history. When you're talking with somebody with whom you have a relationship history, you say, hey, remember that one time when we, oh yeah, that was great. That reminds me of that other time when we, oh yeah, that was awesome. I'd forgotten about that. That reminds me of this other time too. Hey, remember Fred who over there, da, da, da. Relationship history is time over time. And that is fundamental to create a context within which faith can grow. It's fundamental. It takes time over time, not just a moment here and there. Friends, a moment here and there is how much time the church has your kids. A relationship history is how much time you have your kids. The average church kid in America is present for about 40 hours a year. The average kid is under the roof of parents and under their care, 3,000 hours a year. 40 hours a year cannot do what you're called to do as a parent when you have them 3,000 hours a year. That's why this is not spiritual babysitting. We cannot fix what you've done. We can't undo what you've done by ourselves. We must continue as parents to develop a relationship history. It's the foundational stuff for creating a context where faith can grow. Here's the problem with this, though. Here's the problem. It takes a lot of time, A, and B, we don't have a lot of time. 
And since, and since we're not just trying to, we're not just trying to, to raise kids who get good jobs and marry the right people, there's nothing wrong with that, but that will be the outgrowth of a, a relationship of integrity with you and with God. We're not just trying to raise kids who get good jobs and, quote, contribute to society because, pause, friends, the road to hell for our kids is often paved with pathetic civil goals laid by parents. Hashtag tweet this because this is big. Some of us have bought into this ridiculous American dream lie. You can create a kid who gets straight A's, who becomes the president, who has millions of dollars in the bank, and is as established as anybody on the planet Earth has ever been, and yet not know Jesus. doesn't matter what they do. It matters they have a relationship with Christ. The road to hell for our kids can often be paved with pathetic civil goals laid by parents. And so since we're not just trying to raise kids who get good grades, who get a good job, we're trying to raise kingdom warriors, we realize that the problem of A, we don't have a lot of time, or it takes time, and B, that it isn't a lot of time available to us, means that it's requiring great focus. It's a big task. This isn't a small thing we're called to do here. We're called to raise kingdom warriors. Which is why today we're telling you about this tool that we're launching called Legacy Marbles. The Legacy Marbles kit is uh, illustrated up here for you. It's a way to help us maintain focus. It's a way to visualize time. The basic way it works is you start with your kid's age and take out one per week. This marble represents one week in the life of a child. And in basic terms, you just start with your kid's age and take one out. This banner here sort of communicates well the gist of, of why we think this is going to be helpful for us. When you see how much time you have left, you tend to do more with the time you have now. And this is a visual reminder for us to mark the time. At birth, there are on average 936 marbles in the life of a kid. 936 weeks in the life of a child from birth to graduation. That's what you see on the far right there. 936 marbles. That's the number of marbles for a week for, for a kid per week until they graduate. The middle jar here is 510 marbles. This right here is a kid going into school. This right here is a kid, I'm sorry, this is 510, yes, a kid going into preschool. Look at, look, look at how much is already gone. This is 8th grade. Your kid at 8th grade only has that much left. That much time. 249 weeks before they graduate from high school. Now, here's some cool stuff about this kit. It comes with some special marbles that don't just mark a week at a time. They mark special moments in the life of a kid. There's a birthday marble, one for each year. You obviously take that out at birthday. There's a dedication marble, which you can take out at a first step of faith or a baby dedication, something 
like that. There's the wisdom marble that you take out on the first day of school. Uh, there's a faith marble or a baptism marble that, that you uh, take out when they make a public profession of faith in Christ and in the waters of baptism. Uh, there's a transition marble that can mark some sort of coming of age. Uh, you can define that how you'd like. There's a freedom marble that is like a driver's license or, or something that marks their independence or finally getting them one step toward kicking them out of the house. And then there's the graduation marble, which obviously you take out at high school graduation. Now, you take out one per week to mark the time. And then you take out these special marbles uh, along the way, perhaps at a weekly family meal, some kind of ceremony to, to help mark the time on a regular basis as a visual reminder, as a, as a reminder to us to maintain the focus, to maintain the focus, to maintain the focus on what God wants for our kids. What happens is you take them out and you put them, these special marbles, into this pouch and this becomes a visual reminder of the context that God used in your family to grow faith in the life of a child. Visualizing our time like this helps us uh, remember, which means that this kid walks out of here with a visual reminder of the context God used in their own life to bring them to know Jesus. I guarantee you, every kid who gets one of these, this will be one of the most treasured possessions. Because this will mean, this is what, my, this is what those who came before me did. This is what those who came before me did so that I could know Jesus. That's a precious gift to a kid because of what it represents. And friends, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to create a relationship history. The second factor that contributes to a context where faith can grow, the second factor is love. There we go. The second factor that contributes to a context where faith can grow is love over time. And we'll show you what, what uh, develops from that, from Genesis 1. Look up Genesis 1, 26 through 8 with me. Genesis 1, 26 through 8. We learn here about a, an amazing concept. Most of you probably heard about this. If you haven't, though, it's, it's one of the most important things about who you are and how God created you. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man... In our image, after our likeness. In very basic terms, Scripture is telling us here that we are in some substantive way, some meaningful way, some important way that defines us and identifies us. We are some in important way like God in our makeup and in our purpose. That we are like God in our makeup and our purpose. To be made in God's image doesn't mean that we are God. It means that we are made with godly stuff and are made to do what God did. Not with the same glory or perfection or power. No, no. But nonetheless, created to be uh, an illustration of God, a picture of God, and to have the same purpose as God. So keep reading there. Still God talking about man here. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. It says them there because 
when it said, let us make man earlier, that's like mankind. So it's referring to both uh, man and woman. We see that later on. Let them have dominion. This dominion here is not just some sort of authority of office uh, that's just bestowed upon somebody. This is like a responsibility to, to guard, to protect. This is a ruling with responsibility. This isn't just an office or an authority that's bestowed upon us. It's something that has to happen as God enables us. So we are t- caretakers of this creation. You get some of that sense of being a caretaker here as we continue reading. The, the New Testament talks about it as shepherding. It's a good another way. It's a good additional way to think about it. So you get some of that shepherding and, and caretaking a dominion sense as you keep reading here in verse 26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So there's a restatement and a summary of all that here in the next couple of verses. Let's read those, 27 and 8. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, now notice this before we move on. There's a little clarification on this caretaker thing. It's not just, uh, and, and this is huge if we're, going to, if we're going to understand what God is doing here in, in, in calling us to parenting. It's not just make sure this thing doesn't die. And I think some parents think they're successful if their kids keep their nose clean and they don't die. It's not just make sure these things I'm calling you to take care of, Adam, don't die. There's more than that here. It's also make sure this environment is one where growth takes place. That's the distinction between those who depend on the 40 hours and those who take care of their kids by understanding they have 3,000 hours. Make sure this environment is one where growth occurs. If you don't get this as a Christian, you won't get anything else. If you don't get this early on in the Bible, you will misread the rest of this. You will misunderstand who God's created you to be. He says, be fruitful. Produce. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God's creative act is an act of mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you see that for every human being, there is great inherent worth in this truth just just by being born. Being born is is a testimony to God because being born is evidence that God's creative work is continuing to happen. So being born is its own testimony to the work of God moving forward. To say that you were created in the image of God is the most important thing that anybody has ever said about you. One writer says it this way, and I'll read this for you. About this verse, he says this, Consider this, Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few light years below the plane of the Milky Way. Though you could slow to examine the host of young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up the stars poised to burst forth from their cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth, and he says this, 
in all your stellar journeys, you will never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. And the greatest wonder of all is that each and every child is created with worth. Each and every child is created with worth. That's why it takes love over time. That's why it takes love over time. What if we started treating every child like they were made in the image of God? How would that change our conversations? How would that change our parenting? How would that change the way we respond? Uh, Knowing that in that child is the potential to do what God did. This extends to all kids who have ever existed. Whether they are healthy, strong, or obedient, or they're sick, or diseased, or rebellious. There is inherent worth and value to each and every kid who has ever been born. And it's love over time that establishes that worth. Did you know the second leading cause of death in teenagers is suicide? Tell me worth doesn't matter. We're not going to do this now, but we could unpack a loss of the sense of this worth in each of us, even as adults. To simply say you value to the creator God of the universe is one of the most profound things that you can tell somebody. This is huge. It's huge. So, practically, what does that look like? Real briefly, you've got to prove it. Love is proven. This is how you establish it in them. You prove it. You prove it three ways. Number one, you show up. You show up. You're present consistently over time. You show up. Secondly, you know them. You know them. There was a daughter who was frustrated with her dad once. <clears throat> she was an early teenage uh, girl and she was frustrated with her dad once and said, Dad, you don't even know me. Actually, she probably screamed it and was dramatic about it. Sorry. Dad, you don't even know me. And so she proceeded to give him a 10-question quiz with questions like, who is my favorite musical artist? Uh, what is my favorite TV show? Uh, what's my favorite subject in school? And the dad uh, failed miserably. It was like he got eight of them wrong. And no, it wasn't me. To know them is to know them. Not what you want them to be. Not who you were. Kids can sniff out external duty-bound expectations from a mile away. You've got to be careful not to imply that they're not worthy of being known if they don't 
fill in the blank of your expectations. We're talking about an unconditional love that communicates regardless of where you go, how you act, what you do, what you say, how many times you as a a young punk kid teenager with hormones raging look me in the eyes and, and tell me how poor a father I am like Jesus. The call is to love unconditionally. Kids need to be known. You need to know them. That takes some work. That takes some unconditional love. Lastly, never leave. It's the last way we prove it. Never leave. And real briefly, leaving does not have to do with geography. Kids can have parents, one or both of whom, have left emotionally, left the process. This is perhaps a larger danger in the Christian world. Instead of sticking with the process, they leave emotionally, which functionally means the kids sense and feel and are aware of a parent leaving them. Don't kid yourself. They they know it. They know it. We're going to fly through the last four. Number three is words over time. Words over time that give them a sense of direction. Words over time give them a sense of direction. Never underestimate the power of your words to speak truth into the life of a child. When Adam was naming the animals and then Eve, as she helped later on, they were doing what God did in using words to give them a direction. They saw something in this animal and said, well, you do this, so I'm naming you this. It's, it, it's much like that. Let me say it this way. This is what we need to do with our kids and young people. We get to use words to give them a sense of direction. All it takes, all it takes is, hey, I noticed you doing this. You really do that well. You're a really good, it's not rocket science. All it takes is understanding that your words can be used to build up, to engage, to encourage, to help, to direct in ways where you are looking into the life of a child and naming and speaking truth about who God wants this kid to be. Fourth, stories over time. The four of six that go into a context of creating a place where faith can grow. That brings a sense of perspective. Stories over time create a perspective. Did you know that research shows that the more stories you read to children, the more of a sense of empathy will develop in that child when they're an adult. There's a direct correlation. This isn't just correlation. This is probably in a sense causation. But the more stories you're reading in the life of a child, the more of a sense of empathy that child will have as an adult, the more of the sense of the other person's experience. This is building into them a sense of uh, perspective that we would also call humility. And, And when that story, when that story is the story of God in the Scriptures... It's a perspective 
on who God is and what He's done among His people, that they will intuit. Don't underestimate how important that is. Telling the story of God's work in our own lives as adults to our kids, huge, huge. There is a a line for this uh, that sometimes people cross, but there is a vulnerability that needs to happen on the part of a parent so that kids can know the story of God's work in their own lives. Otherwise, kid grows up and goes, I don't know anything about you and Jesus. I didn't see him work in your life. You never told me anything. How am I supposed to know? The fifth, and this is a kind of a funny word perhaps for some of you. It's an old word that's being recaptured uh, a lot nowadays. Tribes over time provide a sense of belonging. Tribes over time provide a sense of belonging. Tribe is a buzzword nowadays. It's just a, a group of people that have something in common. could be anything. It could be their ancestry. could be ideas. It could be we went to the same school. It could be experiences. It could be politics. It could be sports. Uh, for us, it's the people of God and our belief in Jesus as Savior. Letting them know that they're a part of something bigger, that they're a part of a tribe over time, will give them a sense of, of belonging. They need to know. They need to know they're a part of something bigger. You'll often notice here in worship uh, that about 50% or so of the instrumentalists and those who participate in singing are uh, under the age of 30. 75% of our AV crew, in fact, I think almost 100 today, um, are under the age of 30. (laughs) That's great. That's huge. They need to know that they're a part of the body of Christ, actively engaged in something bigger than themselves. So they'll have a sense of belonging so that they'll know where they, where they belong. The last one, and this is going to sound a little strange to you. Fun over time. That's my wife clapping because she likes to have fun. This may sound a little weird to you at first, but I have begun to buy increasingly into the importance uh, of fun because it creates a connection. When you have fun with someone... It creates a connection. It builds a connection because the other person, and this is big, this is big, the other person knows you like them no matter what, no matter how well they perform, no matter the context. It's building connection because the other person knows you just enjoy being with them. Don't underestimate the importance of that. Having fun is no strings attached enjoyment of the other person. Doesn't mean you have to be playing games all the time. Doesn't mean it has to be a competition. Don't worry, we're not going to like bring out the beach balls and have you hitting beach balls. Uh, what would be the end of the world with that, by the way? But having fun is about a no strings attachment, no strings attached enjoyment of the other person. In fact, I'm going to say something that you may not believe, but I'm convinced it's a key piece of this. A fun environment in the context of a relationship with other believers can be one of the substantive ways that we take a swing of the axe to the root of performance-based legalism.
letting them know we like to be with them with no strings attached. I'll go so far as to say is an example of the gospel. The truth that though we looked up at re- in red-handed rebellion at God and yet He came to make Himself known to us in the person of Jesus is a no-strings-attached enjoyment of the value that He placed in us when He made us in His image. When you first start having kids, everybody tells you, like I mentioned before, you'll hear it hundreds of times perhaps. Enjoy them while you can. Enjoy them while you can. Enjoy them while you can because they'll be gone before you know it. This is our, uh, this is our two-year-old, Emery. This is our 10-year-old, Alden. This is our 13-year-old. That's all we've got left. That's all we've got left. There's not a lot of time left, friends. The importance of what we're talking about today isn't just pie in the sky. This isn't just pretend. This is important because we become a context in our relationships with one another, in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, in this congregation. We become a context where faith can grow and it matters so the kids can have for themselves a history with Jesus. Let's pray, friends. for you, for what you've done for us, for who you are. That though you are perfect in character and nature, though you are morally perfect and good and right, though you are just, though you are just in your condemnation of sin, you gave us grace. You extended to us mercy. You committed yourself to us in the person of Jesus so that we could know you. In a way which modeled for us unconditional love. The time and time again you have demonstrated to us that you love us and you care for us. Father, we love you for that. We love you back for that. And ask that you would continue to make of us men and women that you would Make of us people whose lives are a reflection of your love for us. That we would increasingly bear your image. That we would increasingly, in our relationships with one another, work in ways that create an environment where faith can grow. So that we would do what you've called us to. So that the enjoyment of being used to do what you called us to do would be a model for those who come behind. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.